Listen, did you guys appreciate Uriel last week? If you were here, give him a shout out because Uriel was phenomenal. He's the guy who preached last week. <laughs> we caught the 12 p.m. service last week and just were blown away by the way that he opened up scripture. So thank you, Uriel, for doing that. Um, thank you, those of you who are watching online. If this is your first time, welcome to Crosswalk. Good to have you here. We want to get to know you um, as much as possible as we can. So, um, so many, so many good things happening. And we've been... Like, we've been killing Romans, man. We have been, like, this week, like, 19 or something, 20? I don't know. We've been in Romans forever, it feels like. But, um, but it's been worth it to me because we come to this. We're starting a new series next week called Therefore, um, which is the rest of Romans. <laughs> <laughs> but we thought we'd change the name because I'm sick of seeing that, that graphic. So, um, so no, we're starting a new series and we'll go more quickly. We're going to take a, a, a chapter a week for the next few weeks to get through it. So um, thanks for being there with us. But I, I, you know, to me, this has been great because I think we study scripture and oftentimes one of the kind of the hermeneutics, if you will, the way that we study scripture within the Seventh-day Adventist church is we have a tendency to kind of study for a point rather than just opening up scripture and saying we're going to go deep every single day and work word for word through scripture. So that's been a blessing to me. I hope it's been a blessing to you. And, um, and we get to just, oh, good stuff today. It's my favorite text. It really is, particularly the last part of it. But I'm actually going to start a little bit before... Um, I'm going to start a little bit before in verse 28, and we'll get there in just a second. But I want to ask this first question. Uh, the first question is this. What, what do you know? Like, what do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt? What are, you, what are you convicted of? What are all the things that you can be sure of in your life? Because there's a lot of things that are a bit fleeting, right? A lot of things that are, you know, are not really firm. In fact, I was, I was going to put up a bunch of pictures of myself from high school, um, <laughs> as an illustration, then decided just not to, so you don't have that information, because you all have phones, and I see you guys at weird times picking up your phone and taking pictures of stuff. Um, I didn't want to give you all the ammunition that you needed. So, but you remember, if you went to high school, and most of us have, if not all of us, um, there were certain styles that you thought, like, those were the thing, and we'll be dressing like that forever, right? Of course we will. In fact, one of the styles, I think a little more than in college than high school was, you know, the kind of straight leg pants and they were kind of long. So you walked on the back of them. And I went to PUC for a year and it rained up there a lot. And so there was always just water creeping up the back of your leg. And for some reason I thought, yeah, this looks really cool. This is probably how we're going to dress forever. Um, there are things that are, there are things that are changing. There are things that move. There are things that, um, and then there are things that, that, of course, never change. So I guess the question would be, what do you hold on to firmly? And what do you hold on to loosely? We were, uh, a few years back, we went to do some work in Waveland, Mississippi. I took a group of high school kids to Waveland, Mississippi after Katrina. And this is a place that had just been, just been destroyed by, the, um, by, by Katrina. And so we went there to to do some work in the area with the houses that were there. We spent about seven, eight, nine days, I can't remember exactly, about 30 high school kids, I think. And at one night we were eating at this pizza place and we were talking to some of the locals that were there, you know, tell us about it, what was it like? And, and the particular person who was serving us, she started talking about how, you know, the water kept coming in and so they went from the first floor to the second floor. And when the water hit the second floor, they got really nervous, so they went to the attic. When the water hit the attic, they then cut a hole in the roof so they could step out and be on the roof. I mean, can you imagine? We're talking about 20 feet of water coming through um, Waveland. And then, 
And then she said, and then it kept coming. And so she said, we, we all, and she said, you could see people on other houses doing the same thing. So they're all standing on their roofs. And now all of a sudden the water is continuing. And so they were going over to the trees that were in their yards and that they could jump to or climb to from their roof. And they were holding on. And when the wind would come, um, it would blow the trees so hard that the trees would go down. And of course, you know, depending on what tree you held on to depended on how you survived. She said, every single time the wind would blow and the tree would go down, she said, luckily I was on a tree that was very strong, but it was very flexible. And so it would go down and then she said, and then the wind would stop and it would kind of come right back up and I would hold on for dear life. And I'd look and I'd see friends not come back up on their trees or their trees not come back up at all because they had broken because they were too rigid and didn't have any flexibility, or, or they weren't strong enough, or they were too strong so they couldn't bend and they just broke. And I mean, I just remember her telling me this, thinking, like, how, how, do, you, how do you do that and then just like five months later be serving pizza to somebody talking about that? Like, I couldn't kind of get my head around that. It was overwhelming, you know? But they survived because they believed in something or they held on to something that was flexible enough to bend, but strong enough not to break, right? What are you holding on to? What do you hold on to firmly? What do you hold on to loosely? What are you convicted of? Because things change, what can we know for sure? I mean, there's the epistemological question, right, of how, how we can know anything at all. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying of what you know, how can you be sure? In Romans 8, 28, there are a few things that we can know. In one sentence, Paul gives us five things that we can know. And so I'll be jumping back to verse 28, and then we'll jump over to verse 31. In verse 28, there are five things that Paul gives us that you can know, and there are five things from one sentence. It begins like this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's a famous text, right? We all understood it. And it's often misused, often misunderstood. But it can give us five things that we can know. We have a tendency to use it as like, you know, we're in a crisis, but this crisis will end up working for the good, which is fine. It's not exactly what Paul was saying, but not exactly not what Paul was saying. Anyway, the first thing that we can learn from this text says this, we know that God is at work for the good of his people. We know, we know that God works or is at work in our lives, right? There's some interesting nuances to this text right? It's, it's a nuance. It's not about the good that will make everything make sense. That's not what Paul's talking about. Um, no, it's about the fact that God is ceaselessly, energetically, emphatically, and purposefully working and active on your behalf. That's what he means when he says that we know that God works. And the second reason, second thing that we know from this text is that we know that God is at work for the good of his people, for the good of those who've accepted him. Now, it's easy to go, okay, so those that he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, that don't love him, he doesn't work for, that's not what we're saying here. But we're saying that there is a relationship between the people that have chosen God. God loves everyone and works for everybody. However, at, at some point, it, it, you know, the good he does is not good for the people who don't love him. But since God is good, his works are all expressions of that goodness. And this goodness is expressed most profoundly through our final salvation. He does absolutely work for those unbelievers, but that work is a bit different because he's working through the Holy Spirit that they may know that they need God. For us, he's working for us to understand our salvation and know that we're saved. Verse three, or the 
three thing, third thing, um, God works for good in all things. All that messy stuff that, it, that Uriel talked about last week, all that, that hard stuff, all that difficult things, all the stuff that doesn't make sense in your life, God is working that those things might be good. Now, let's be clear. I don't believe that God sends tragedy so that you might learn something. That's a different kind of theology. I believe that God can use all the mess that happens, often our fault, often things that we've created in our lives. God can even use those things for good and, and can, can create good out of it for all of us. The fourth thing is this, God works in all things for the good of those who love them. Again, not that he doesn't want good for others, but at times what God wants is the antithesis of someone who is not in a relationship with God and what they want for their lives. And so he works for the good of all those who love him. And fifthly, fifthly, we know that those who love God are also described as those who have been called. God always calls with a purpose in mind. He always does. God never calls you just to sit around. God calls you for a particular purpose. His purpose is lived through us in a myriad of different ways, through your gifting, through your calling, through the, the culture that you create around you, through the community that God has called you to. All of these things are deeply held within your salvation. Calling is deeply enmeshed in your salvation. You were saved for a purpose. You weren't just saved to be a bump on a log. You were saved to build a cabin with that log. I'm pushing it too far, sorry. Um, I just thought of that and it's not great, um, but it's okay. These are the five things that you can know from chapter eight, verse 28. The, the next two verses, which I'm gonna jump over, the next two verses really give us five affirmations of God for us and God looking out for us. And there's some of those predestina predestination texts. I'm not gonna deal with those today, just in the order of time. But there are five affirmations within that about us and the fact that God loves us. But jumping to Romans 8.31, which is where we're really digging in today. Romans 8.31, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. It says this, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? And this begins, of course, this begins kind of the last rungs of the ladder that Paul has been building in his argument here. This is not a flippant, uh, what shall we say about such things, such wonderful things as these? It's not a flippant thing. This is like not Paul just tweeting out something like, whoa, a random, unconnected question. This particular question, by the way, there's five questions that we're going to deal with. Paul really did this well. Five, five things we can know, five affirmations, five kind of unanswerable questions. But it's not something that he just put out there in a tweet, not connected to something else. Paul, for the last, for us, almost 20 weeks, Paul has been building a theological argument full of wonderful things, full of amazing revelations of God to us that Paul now says when he gets here, by the way, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? And then he begins it, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Right, so good. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Now he didn't, he didn't ask who is against us, right? He asked with the qualifier, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because if he had just asked who can ever be against us, there's a ton of people that can be against us. There's a ton of things that can be against us. Sin, our sinful nature is working against us. Satan is working against us, the accuser. Sometimes we work against ourselves. Sometimes people of God work against one another because we're human beings and we kind of can't get it straight sometimes. There's a ton of things that are working against us. But when you put the qualifier in, when you say, if God is for us, it becomes a completely different question, doesn't it? Without the qualifier, 
We can say a great deal of things are against us, but with the qualifier, it different, it's different. The essence of the question is contained in the if clause of this sentence. That's where it begins. It makes it a different and more settled question. It's unanswerable because, of course, who's going to go up against God? No one can. Romans 8, 32, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, he also, won't he also give us everything else? Again, the qualifier makes the difference. Since or if, since he did not even spare his own son. So the qualifier here is the cross. The cross is the guarantee of the continuing and unreasonable generosity of God. Friends, we have a tendency to deal with God like we've got a stream of love coming from God. We don't have a stream of love. We have an ocean of love. We have a tendency to think that we've got, you know, we, we've got, we've got a, little, a little canyon of God's love, but we've got a mountain of God's love. We have a tendency to diminish the amount and power of love that God has for us, and we shouldn't do that because it is unreasonable and overwhelming. It is an ocean, not a puddle. This is the love that we have from God. So won't he give us everything else? He's already given us everything else. You understand that, that when we talk about the cross, we're talking about the overwhelming and unreasonable love of God that has already been given to us. So it is a stupid question he asks in some respects because there is no answer to it. Romans 8.33, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us the right standing with himself. That's a closed loop, friends. There's no chance in there that it's not going to work out for you. There's no chance because God is the one who justifies to himself. He's taking care of both ends of the spectrum here. The question brings us to the court of law, right? That's what he's talking about when we start talking about justification. Paul's argument is that no prosecution can succeed since God, our judge, has already justified us as well. We can never be condemned. So who can accuse us? By the way, you understand the name Satan means accuser, right? So he's speaking directly against any accusation that may come to you from Satan. Who's going to accuse you? Is that guy going to do it? It's his name, but he can't do it because he also can't justify you. Because by the way, you've already been justified by God. So accuse all you want. It is like arrows glancing off a shield. There's nothing he can say. There's nothing he can do. Right? Is that how convinced we are of this? Romans 8:34, who then will condemn us? No one. No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So why do will their condemnations fail? Well, for one reason. Because of Jesus Christ. And why is that? Well, first of all because he died. He died for us, right? He, he conquered sin by dying for us. And then he was resurrected for us as well. So he conquers death through resurrection. And because he was raised to life and now is at the right hand, he has ascended to heaven. He is now at the right hand of God interceding for us. He is resting 
Jesus is now. He is occupying a place of supreme honor at the right hand of God. He is exercising authority to save that has come from God through him. And he is waiting for his final triumph and his final coming. Why are you saved? Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Are you listening, folks? Why are you saved? Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You're not saved because of what you did. You're not saved because you believe in a certain way. You're not saved because you kept the Sabbath a certain way or kept it at all. That's not why you're saved. Understand, you're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I shouldn't even have to say that, but we've been so conditioned to think of it another way. We've been so conditioned to think that it's something that we've done who will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us. That's the reason no one will condemn us. Man, listen, because he is introducing, he is interceding for us. He's, he's there going, God, they're good. They're phenomenal. They're amazing. I love them so much. He is our high priest. This, this is the way that was completed the work of atonement for us. And he continues, he continues to be the source of love and grace for his people who benefit from his death. Who is it that condemns? There's never gonna be an answer to that question. Never gonna be, but, but, but I gotta ask, if there's never an answer to that question of who will condemn us, why are we so self-condemning? Why do we condemn our own selves why do we think that we're not saved because of how bad we are when God has said, I've taken care of that for you? Why is it that we constantly battle God's will to save us? That's the weirdest thing. So I, I, I like watching those animal rescues that show up every once in a while on your Facebook feed. You know, like, a, a, like an animal will get caught in, in a wire or something and somebody cuts them out. The animal's always fighting the whole time and you're always like, don't do it. Like, let the guy cut that off, you know? A fish caught in one of those, you know, those plasticky things that we use for six packs. Like, that kind of thing. And the, the animals always freak out. But I saw one this week that was phenomenal. It was this owl that had been caught up in this, like, safety guard thing. And this owl was just, maybe you saw it. It was just, I mean, the thing's wings were back. It was just a mess. And when the guy came up, the owl's, you know, like, he can't move. He's seriously, and he's just, ah, ah, ah. It was kind of weird looking. Um, but as soon as the guy started to come out, it's like the owl and they're wise, as we all know. <laughs> Isn't that what you learned? Isn't that what you learned when you were little? Like owls are wise. Are they? I don't know that they really are. They live in barns. They're not that wise. But um, no, so, but it, it's like he goes, oh, okay. All right. I'll let you help. Go ahead. Cut it off. I mean, this poor owl, they got him out and they were just saying sweet things to him the whole time. They finally did cover his eyes. Um, but, but I think about us, we're, we're the animal that's always trying to bite the one who's trying to save us. Why do we do that? What is it with us that can't just accept the grace of God, can't accept that gift? Why do we put ourselves on the throne of our own hearts? Why do we do that? When God has said, no, no, I've, I've done this for you. I've done this so much that no one can even convict you, condemn you of anything. And then it starts in Romans 8:35. It says this, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love. 
right? He asks this question, and then he sort of rifles around in the drawer. Do you all have that junk drawer at your house? It's okay. You don't have to admit that you do, but you do. We all know you do, right? You've got that one drawer that has like scissors and stamps and, and rubber bands and receipts and old credit cards and keys that you don't even know. You don't even live in that house anymore. Like you haven't had that car in 13 years, but you keep the key because you never know. Like you're going to see it in a parking lot and be like, oh, I'm going to take it back now. I don't know why we keep those keys, but we all have that juncture, right? So he goes, he goes like, can anything separate us from Christ's love? And he's like, hang on a second. And he opens up and he's like rifling through this drawer. And he's like, can scissors, no, scissors can't do it. Can pins, why do we have so many pins? Do we know why we have so many pins? I don't know. Can hardship? No. I mean, can, can trouble? Can calamity? Or persecution? Or hunger? Or destitution? Or being in danger or threatened with death? Can these things separate us from the love of God? And then he quotes scripture, like he remembers, he's looking in the drawer and then he remembers and he goes, no, no, well, I mean, as the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. So we, we knew this was gonna happen, Psalm 44. This is well known. Those seven afflictions that he talks about, they're real suffering, friends, real suffering. They're unpleasant, they're demeaning, they're painful, they're hard to bear. They're certainly challenging to faith. But by the way, Jesus suffered every single one. It didn't separate him from the love of God. Oh, and by the way, Paul suffered every single one. It didn't separate him from the love of God. You have no clue of suffering. Friends, we don't suffer. We suffer because we have too many choices for dinner. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Oh, it's so hard to figure out. Just go to Panera. Get it over with. And usually by Panera, there's a Chipotle and there's probably something else. So you can all be happy. Right? This is what we suffer from. We suffer from, I've got too many clothes. I don't know what to do with them. We suffer from, I don't know which job I should take. Really? Destitution, hardship, pain. God suffered from all these things. Jesus suffered from all these things. Paul suffered from all these things. Martyrs have suffered from all these things. Do these things separate us? No. Romans 8, 37, no, despite all these things. And then he says an interesting word. He says hypernicomen, right? He says a word that is more than the word that we have in English. We have overcomers, which sounds great. That's good. I like to be an overcomer. But it's not the way, it's not the right explanation. It's not the right translation. The better translation is we are super overcomers. We're super overwhelming overcomers. And this is why I like the New Living Translation on this. Overwhelming victory is ours, but it's not through you. It's through Christ for one reason, because he loved us. You see, we're super overcomers because we not only bear these things, but we triumph over these things. Our victory comes from and through Christ who loved us. It didn't come from the things that we've done. It didn't come from the way that we managed ourselves or managed our sin. It didn't come from how good we are, our competencies or how successful we are. It didn't come from any of that. It didn't even come from the things that we went through. What it came from is the grace of Jesus Christ who had been through all those things, all the bad things and had gone through all the good things that will go through your life as well. Right? This is all coming through despite all these things. And Paul's talking about when he says despite all these things, not just the seven hardships that he mentioned, despite all the things that started from chapter one all the way to here. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And then he starts. You can tell Paul's just... Paul's just humming along here, man. He's writing, he's writing. And he gets to this part and he's like, okay, like this is the capstone. This is it. Like I need to, I need to, I need to land the plane, but like we're going to come in hard and fast for a landing. 
We're going to write something. We're going to write something that everyone should know. Everyone. If you don't know any scripture, memorize this. If you don't know, if you don't know anything about the Bible, memorize this. It says this, and I am convinced. Romans 8, 38. And I am convinced. I have become and remain convinced. This is conviction. This is settled. This is unalterable. That's why we ask the question, what are you convicted of? What are you convinced about in your faith? And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. And he goes back to the junk drawer and he goes, now what's left? And he goes, neither, neither death, and he starts with the big one, right? He doesn't start with the easy one. He starts with the hard one. By the way, the thing that you think stops you from everything <laughs> doesn't. Neither death nor life. Dying's easy sometimes. Living's harder. Neither angels nor demons. So there are supernatural things that you may not understand, but those things aren't going to separate you. Neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. So no matter what's going on in your life or what you're stressed about going on in your life, that's not going to separate you. Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. That's a big one. Not even the power of hell. Nothing, nothing that is negative is going to separate you from the love of God. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation, and that's his catch-all, right? Listen, if I forgot anything, nothing at all, nothing at all in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is why I ask the question, what do you know? What do you know to be real about your faith? What do you know to be true? What are you convicted of? And it's important that we ask this question, and it's doubly important that we ask this question today as Seventh-day Adventists, because our church is struggling to figure out what's important. Our church hierarchy is putting together committees to make sure you're compliant about certain things. Where do we do that in church? Why do we do that in church? To make sure you keep things a certain way and act a certain way, make sure that I do it. But I know one thing. I know one thing. And see, because I got to grab onto a tree because there's a wind blowing. I got to grab onto a tree because the water is getting higher and higher. And I got to pick the right tree to grab a hold of. And if I'm going to grab a hold of a tree, I want it to be strong enough to stay, but flexible enough to bend. It's got to be both things. And the only way it's going to be both things is if it's deeply rooted in who God is and strong enough to stand on a cross. That is the only way. What do you know? What can you be assured of? What are you convicted of? Paul was convicted of one thing, of everything he knew, of all his ministry, of all his life. He was convicted of one thing. And that one thing was that nothing anyone does here is going to separate him from who God is there. Ever. Ever. Listen, humans make mistakes. I make mistakes. We make them all the time. We will make mistakes organizationally, and hopefully we will write those mistakes, or future generations will write those mistakes. But if you know from where your grace comes from, you're going to be fine. If you know who Jesus Christ is and what he did, you're going to be fine. The, the, the fight for the soul of our church right now is not about a women's ordination. It's not about how you keep the Sabbath. It's about whether we're going to be Christians or not. And I want to be a Christian. I want to delve deeply into the grace of Jesus Christ. I want to live in super overcoming victory because I can never be separated from Jesus Christ. 
I pray for my church because it's so full of phenomenal people. And, and I think we're distracted. And I didn't mean to go here, I apologize. But I think we're distracted right now. I think we're distracted about the one thing. And if I see anything in chapters 1 through 8 in the book of Romans, it's Paul just coming back as hard as he can and saying, don't get distracted. There's a God who loves you. Don't, don't be fooled. There is a Jesus who died for you. Don't be, don't be caught up by the machinations of man because there is a grace that is waiting for you. This is what we've been given to give to the world as Christians. This is our job. This is our calling. This is the desire of our hearts. This is the overflow of our hearts and the word on our lips that Jesus loves you, that God loves you so much, he will not let anything separate himself from you. Short of you going, God, I'm just not interested anymore. And God goes, hey, that's you. That's your call. I'm not going to force myself on you, but man, I love you so much. And I am waiting right here like a prodigal father, waiting for you. As I pray for my church, I pray for our church, I pray for this church, I pray for my family, I pray for you, that we might be so convicted and so assured that Jesus Christ is the only way for us to go, that we will let everything else fall aside and the unity that is created by the love of Jesus Christ will compel us into the future. I think this is what we're called to. I think this is what Paul wanted us to understand. And I think this is why Paul writes this and he writes these lists and then he writes this catch-all and he says nothing's going to separate us because we will separate ourselves if we're not careful. Know that God is reaching out for you. Know that God is coming close and God is bringing you near to him because we will step away and we don't have to. What are you convinced of? What are you convicted of? What do you know? Let's live in the truth and the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, your grace. Lord, your power, that's why we overcome, right? That's, that's why we become anything. Lord, I, I believe your hand is right here with us. Whether we're talking about our community right here, the global Seventh-day Adventist community, the broader Christian community, Lord. There's a lot happening, but we need you more than anything. And we need that focus that Paul had on your grace, on your love, on your power and the power of the cross. So Lord, we pray for all these things and we ask that your, the knowledge of you and what you've done for us be the thing that compels us and hurls us into the world to be agents of grace for you, Lord. We pray these things in your holy, powerful, incredible name. And Lord, we ask for a miracle, a miracle of heart, a miracle of intention, a miracle of growth, a miracle of understanding, and a miracle of focus on you, Lord. We ask these things in your holy, precious, and Lord, the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.